This is That Marketing Podcast. Made by marketers for marketers. Welcome to another episode of That Marketing Podcast, brought to you by Spotlight UK. After 24 episodes, we've decided to call an end to season one. So this month's episode is a medley of all our favourite lessons from each episode, going all the way back to February 2020. This isn't the end of the road for That Marketing Podcast. Season two will be launching on January the 1st, 2022. We're going to be focusing on industries this time, and we've already got the CIM back to talk to us, along with Visit Yorkshire and Pink Spaghetti Virtual Assistants. We can't wait to share it with you. I want to start with CIM Vice Chair Lee Hopwood. She had some wise words about how all the topics we've talked about in the season fit together under the banner of marketing. I think the word strategy is often overused. Uh, it can, for me, account-based marketing, it's a, all about an approach. It's an operational approach rather than a strategy. A strategy is um, is, is far more all-encompassing than that. Um, it's far more looking at a, a longer-term approach rather than um, a, an operational or even tactical. Social selling is really quite tactical um, approach to how you might achieve your, your, your objectives and your strategy. So... Um, so when you're looking at that next level down and you're looking at how you might um, implement your strategy and you're looking at your marketing plans, then you might decide to have a, an account-based marketing approach um, or you might have social selling approach and all these other approaches. Um, you might have an approach to content. Um, content strategies are, uh, that phrase I think is, is used an awful lot, um, but it's not a strategy, it's an approach. Marketers generally spend more time complaining about their CRM than appreciating it, but as the keystone of your tech setup, it can deliver a lot of value. Here's John Cheney, CEO of Workbooks CRM. But here at Workbooks, we're strong advocates that marketing automation is a platform for not only driving new business, but also improving customer engagement. Uh, and and we do that all the way across the user journey. So obviously, if you think about a new prospect, then marketing automation is in that instance driving um, new business creation into the business. But once they're on board, then we're using marketing automation all the way through the process. So for example, for some of our clients are using the Spotlight platform to send out transaction emails. So yeah, thank you for your order. Your goods will be delivered in the next 30, 60, 90 days, or it could be, um, We've now finished your implementation project. Would you be willing to provide a survey on how well we did? So that kind of customer engagement, I think, um, can only be achieved when your marketing platform is connected to CRM because that's where your customer data is. Most of the content across the season of the podcast has been around driving the customer experience. But in that CDP episode, David Rabb was quick to point out that the right tech will also improve the internal experience of how marketing works. Well, the benefit from the customer perspective will be probably fairly subtle, okay? What, you're, what you've done primarily is made your marketers more productive. So your marketers will be able to run more and more precisely targeted campaigns. So the customer, he might, he might still get the same number of messages, but the messages will be a little better targeted. They'll be a little more accurate. They'll be a little more appropriate. Jerome Cotout started Salesflare based on the belief that technology built with the end in mind can solve a lot of the admin issues that plague organizations and their data. And he believes we're not far away from having everything in that one place. And then when you think about some other parts of the sales process that are, that are not uh, automatically mapped yet, 
like uh, maybe live conversations come back soon, uh, but okay. that could be solved in a similar way where you basically, instead of somebody listening in on the Zoom call, it's somebody listening in on the, through the phone and everything just starts mapping itself. In episode one, way back in February, 2020, we dived into the hairy world of AI, dealing with the important question of how much data you need to get started. A lot of times you see these really large AI models being built off of thousands and millions of different examples. and Countless hours and money are spent to develop these systems. But in reality, you can get away with, with much less. So typically, if you're doing something in the marketing world, some sort of lifetime value email marketing, you can start in maybe the thousands of, of records um, in order to build some sort of model. When you're looking to buy data, it can be easy to forget about pockets of data that you already have. Here's Gemma Ramond, Head of Marketing at Freeman Clark. With purchase data, it is often more complicated than you think, and it does take a lot more time. You need to be really clear on what your objectives are and what you're trying to get out of that data. And so you also need to fully understand your own database. It's often the case that the way you have your data structured in your database is that you've got small pockets of different types of people in there, whether it's networks or partners that you work with that you might not necessarily market to but um they could they could potentially look like a you know a, a perfect profile from a from a job type perspective or indeed you might have your suspects or prospects that your sales team are already talking to so in order to limit the instance of of duplicates you need to make sure that all of those different pots of people are presented to your data house so that they can run a, a dedupe against them so you're not then purchasing back the data that already exists Legitimate interest has been called the saving grace of the GDPR package for marketers. However, it isn't a ticket to do whatever you like, as John Mitchison from the DMA explains. Um, but if you want to use legitimate interest, you have to do this balancing test, um, whereby you you know you have to uh, you have to consider the nature of the processing, the impact of the processing, and what safeguards you're putting in place. So. One of, the, one of the key things to do here, and one of the things that I've seen people fall down on a lot, is just think that the legitimate interest assessment and the balancing test is just um, a formality. Um, but you do have to conduct this in a, in a fair and unbiased way. Okay, I've seen too many people, um, you know, just write whatever they need to write to make sure it sounds great, you know, uh, and that it, it'll all go through. But you do have to consider the you know the impact and when we talk about the impact that can be a positive or a negative impact on the individual um, you have to think about the safeguards which you put in place so you have to think about um, data minimization whether you uh, might have any technical or organizational measures that might uh, safeguard that data whether your system has been built with privacy by design uh, whether there's any encryption in there obviously you have to have uh, an option for opt out or, or um, uh, objection to processing all these kind of things um, so yes when you're when you're considering that balancing test it's all about being fair and unbiased there's a lot of debate about how much b2b and b2c can learn from each other one of the key differences between them is the length of the sales cycle or there's going to be a lot fewer steps in b2c sometimes and that's because there's usually only one buyer involved in the decision process you know, B2C is also all done on the website, whereas in B2B, there might be some other extra piece. You know, someone might be hopping on a demo, doing a live demo, maybe participating in an onboarding call. That really just doesn't exist in 
in B2C, you wouldn't get onboarded after you purchase a product online. All marketers love funnels, but Robert Norum argues that in order to do account-based marketing properly, we have to also think outside of them. I think if you're if you're looking at one-to-one -one accounts, then really you're working, um, you know, sales and marketing working really closely together to identify not just you know the key drivers for the account, but actually the the, the individuals you want to talk to. So on that basis, I think it, it kind of coexists with the funnel, um, and it, it's less about traditional, um, you know, MQLs or SQLs and driving people through that funnel. It's more about engagement with a particular account at a particular time. Susan Hallam taught us that while account-based anything is thrown around as a great buzzword, a lot of thought is needed to actually do the process right. But the most important thing would be is, is I do have to have a deep understanding of, of, of what the potential client wants. I have to have a deep understanding of what motivates them. And I have to have a deep understanding of what value I'm going to be adding to that relationship. Since it's our podcast, it would be remiss of us not to have a small product plug in here. But I'll let Emma Dolby explain why the Gator suite of tools is so powerful for her team at Direct Air and Pipework. So it's probably worth considering some of the challenges that we have to kind of like understand why it's really good for us as a resource. So yeah. while we sell products, we're not an e-commerce business. So we're selling products to solve solutions, to win maintenance contracts, to maintain these long-term customer-supplier relationships as we all want to achieve. But that does mean there's kind of varying sales cycle lengths sometimes up to two years. Um, so leads and inquiries are literally worth their weight in gold to us. We're selling that lifetime cost benefit rather than an instant gratification. So sometimes that means we often have prospects and customers alike um, only wanted to talk to us when they need something or when something's wrong. So that makes reaching out and upselling quite a challenge, um, especially if you're doing it on your own. So the Gator Suite means that we've got everything all in one place. Really cheesy, but we call it our marketing automation toolbox, just like our engineering toolbox. <laughs> As the founder of Smart Insights, David Chaffee is well known for getting deep with theories and models. But in that CRO episode, he shared a concrete example of how his own team have seen conversion rate optimization work in their favour. Yeah, I've got a nice example of this, actually. I, I was mentioning earlier, we were working with this conversion rate agency and we've, like the retailers, we've got a light box on our site uh, for our free membership because we find it works. And we put quite a lot of time into the messaging to show the value and quite a nice, we thought it was quite a nice visual look, but it didn't have the uh, the trust factor in there of any testimonials. So all we did, we we found three different quotes of how people had benefited from the free membership and then because we've got quite a high volume of um, visits to our site we found just within a two-week test that we actually increased conversion rate of our uh, so our, our lead generation effectively by 10 percent which is a fantastic outcome just through changing that 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 copy alone um, as part of the eternal quest to bring sales and marketing closer together we asked the telephone assassin, Anthony Steers, about how the two teams divide up the information gathering stage. Marketing can potentially have the time to look at what other articles are out there on a particular topic or uh, what articles have been put out there by a particular company. That is great insight to give to the salesperson, but the salesperson is going to be de uh, dealing with a human being. 
uh, and the more they know about that human being, the easier it will be to engage them into a conversation, to be able to understand what their values might be, and like I say, what would be a, a likely and easy next step for them to take, subject to the conversation going, how you hope it's going to go. The world of events has been turned upside down more than once since we started this podcast, but Amy Stankist's advice on how to make your events really count remains solid throughout. So we always go back to the, what the objectives, really, what are those objectives for our business? What are we trying to achieve through through that event? But most importantly, the attendees. So what are they trying to get out of that event from the, the moment they sign up through that whole process? And then when they when they arrive on the day, what are they actually expecting to get out of it? Collaborating on content is important, but you also need to manage the gap between creating and publishing, as Zen Newman of Planable explained to us. Yeah, I think it's a matter of prioritizing things. And I, I think the responsibility on uh, the time to launch shouldn't fall just on the creators, but it should fall on approvers as well. So everyone needs to be aligned with this. Are you messaging people into submission? Anthony Tasgal suggests a single letter change that will help the process work a lot better. So I think the idea that you just message people into submission in any sense, as I say, whether it's you know communication, emails, advertising or going on a date, um, I think is, you know, a faulty way of communicating. I prefer to use the word massaging. When you're talking to people, you're trying to massage their sense of self. You're trying to make them feel good about who they are or what they buy or why they make decisions. The biggest lesson we learned from Katie Hart about neuromarketing was that psychology is everywhere and you can't opt out of the effect it has. Whatever we do um, as marketeers is going to have an impact so whether we do that intentionally or not doesn't really make a difference. It is still going to be fed through the same processes in the brain. And sometimes we might hit on something which works really well. Other times we might pull together a campaign we've got lots of confidence in or we might launch a product we've done lots of research into and it isn't successful. So we will still be at the sort of hands of psychology, even if we don't understand those processes behind it. Creating video for your business can be a scary prospect, but Daryl Sigler's best advice is just to get started. And we very much work on the idea of imperfect action. Just do it, work your way through it. Yes, you're going to make some mistakes. Yes, you're going to learn from that. And by pushing forward and onwards, you actually learn the process of video. Dave Oldacre has worked with companies of all sizes, and far too many of them are doing things in the wrong order when it comes to search engine optimization. And it's very difficult to implement SEO after the fact. You know, it's a bit like the old adage, you know, trying to shut the stable door after the horse has bolted. You know, if you don't get it right first time, what you tend to get is, you know, potentially penalties and, and impacts on your appearance in search results, um, which can be harder to recover than it is to get them right in the first place. The reason that businesses often struggle to use humour effectively is they don't properly understand it. As Adam Hunt explained to us on the podcast, all jokes work on a very simple principle. A joke is just two things that shouldn't fit together, but you've made them fit together with a clever twist in the middle. You know, our brains kind of have a little gap to jump, but it's, it's enough of a gap that um, it's funny when we piece, we, we sort of piece a bit together, that sparks a little bit of joy. If you look at any joke that made you laugh, all it really is, whatever the joke, is two things that shouldn't fit together, but you've made them together with a little twist. And when you understand that, you can start to go, all right, you know, what what are what are the things that my audience wants to hear? What can I say to them that's gonna that that, that they will agree with? You aren't being selfless when you ask for user-generated content, so you shouldn't be expecting your customers 
to be selfless when they're offering it to you and creating it. As a marketer, what you need to do is you need to tap into that ego. You need to not just, hey, put up a picture on Instagram. You have to give people that reason that taps into their ego. So-called vanity metrics aren't confined to social media, but it's certainly where they're most prevalent. Jennifer Goodman from Octopus believes they do have value if you look at them in the right way. Yes, social media is certainly filled with, if you will, and I'm doing air quotes, vanity metrics. And I, I would like to say that while they're, we, we often joke as B2B marketers that they're fluff metrics or feel-good metrics, I do think it is important to make sure that we recognize that they do hold some value and I'll separate, you know, what B2B marketers should be looking at versus these metrics. But I actually like to call vanity metrics um, insightful metrics, if you will, or insightful KPIs, because it does give us some glimpse into the direction we need to go into understanding our audience and what type of content encourages more brand interaction. As communicator evolved into Spotler, we learned by doing. The biggest takeaway for our team is that rebranding is a journey and it doesn't end on the day that the new brand launches. Here's Stephanie Scheller of Grow Disrupt. You can do is keep track of everywhere where the old brand is referenced. And in another year or two years, you know, you remove it. Like we left the Scheller Enterprises site up. We rebranded to Grow Disrupt. We left the new site up for a couple of months. And then we started for, we, we put a note on there that said that, you know, we've been rebranded, go here. And then I think after, I think six months, we started forwarding, we took the site down and we forwarded everything. We set up, we set up forwarding links, right? And we forwarded everything to the corresponding Grow Disrupt. And, and you know, we, for about another six months, we referenced this, you know, Scheller Enterprises rebrand, but then we took it all off and we just, you know, we're just Grow Disrupt now. But it was a process. It wasn't like, you know, there's no flipping a switch, I think. I'll leave it to Perry Malmer Frazee to close with a final thought on losing sight of what matters, regardless of what marketing tactic you're using. There's an intellectual curiosity about why something is happening. But people actually scrutinize data a lot more than they scrutinize humans. Like, like humans on a daily basis make bizarre choices. Like, I mean, like, just, just, just think about your, your daily life. I mean, probably, you know, if you think about some of the choices you've made in the last week, none of them or like a bunch of them won't be rational. They, they won't make sense, but they're the choices you made. So you can rationalize them retrospectively. When you do stuff on a purely database standpoint, one of the challenges, right, is that you then try to like rationalize it with numbers and try to find reasons why something happened. And you're absolutely right. You do like lose sight of, but it works. Thank you for joining us for another episode of That Marketing Podcast. You clearly have wonderful taste. We hope you found the content useful and, and enjoyed it. We'd love you to subscribe wherever it is you're listening to us. Maybe leave us a review. If you can think of a topic that you, you'd like us to cover, or even if you fancy coming on the podcast and sharing your own experience on a particular topic, uh, you can reach us at marketingteam at spotler.co.uk. Thanks once again and happy marketing.